So years ago, I was in a church service where the pastor was going to preach from Genesis 22. And there was a reader who read the text that you just heard. And right in the middle of reading the text, this girl got quite emotional. Uh, her voice crackled. She teared up a little. And I knew exactly what was going on, right? So uh, the average person would think, well, okay, this is really emotional, right? You're binding your only son. And yet I think everybody realized something greater was going on here. Uh, just reading this text, I think that woman and maybe some of you in the room realized that we were actually transported to another event and it almost felt like we were sitting at the foot of the cross, didn't it? It almost felt that way. Uh, you might be surprised, in the Anglican church, this is the text they read on Good Friday. They don't read the crucifixion story, they read this story. The Jews call it the binding of Isaac. They don't call it the sacrifice of Isaac because they're looking at it from God's perspective. And this is why we're studying the Old Testament. We're going to be here for about a year because these 39 books show us a progressive revelation of all that God longed to do for the human race. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the gospel in Genesis. This is the gospel according to Abraham. Uh, Jesus said something very profound in his ministry, John chapter 8, where he told the religious leaders, he said, Abraham longed to see my day, and he has. He longed to see this day, and he has, and he was glad in it. Now, you ever hear Jesus, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord? Well, this is one of the statements that would make him a lunatic, right? How could Abraham see his day, and he had seen it, and he was glad? Well, we're going to find out in Genesis chapter 22. Um, the words here are so profound, I asked our team to put a word cloud together. And they did a really great job, and they put it in the form of a cross. Now, if you walked in here, it was Easter. You look up on the screen, you see the cross. It has bright colors, and you see all those words. And all those words are in the New Testament. You would say, well, okay, this is a resurrection story. And yet every word in that word cloud there, only son, worship, wood, altar, fire, love, all come out of Genesis chapter 22. And I want to center in on this one word, love, this overused word in English, right? And so I love my wife, I love my kids, I love cheesesteaks, like, you know, it's kind of overused in a sense. And it's the theme of every popular song, every movie, we just throw the word around and when it gets to morality, uh, we take it another level, right? Like, what is love? What, how do we really show love? And I don't know how many people think about this. If we're here by accident, if we're the product of evolution, uh, love could not be a concept of, at all. It would only be in our brain. There really would be no love. But we know love is the most important force in the universe. And what's fascinating here is that God is love. By our own definition, by Scripture, God is love. It's the essence of who he is. And I've always been fascinated, as someone who studies Scripture, how if God is love, it would take all the way to Genesis 22 to see the word for the first time. Whenever you see a word in Scripture the first time, that's its most important context. So we're going to look at this idea of love. We're going to look at what God is doing to Abraham. We're going to look at this binding of Isaac and what it means to you and me. But the one thing we have to remember is that God has called this man out of a foreign land. This man, Abram, he changes his name to Abraham. He's an idol worshiper, and God calls him. And we don't know how God calls him. We know God spoke to him. And he said, Abraham, leave everything that's familiar, your house, your family, all your possessions, everything you know, to a land 
that I will show you. And then God gives him this grand vision of being a great man, a great nation. All the families in you will be blessed. This is staggering to Abraham. Uh, this promise had the whole human race involved. God wasn't elevating the Jews above anyone else. God said, look, all families of the earth will benefit from this. Now, whatever you believe about Scripture, whether you believe it's true or not, you have to believe this has happened. All the families of the earth have been blessed by Abraham. I've been referencing Thomas Cahill's book, The Gift of the Jews, in almost every service. It has one of the best subtitles I've ever seen, how a tribe of desert nomads, the Jews, changed the way everybody thinks and feels. Uh, Cahill said, without the Jews, uh, we would have never known the abolition movement here in our country, prison reform movement, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, our, uh, apartheid in South Africa, solidarity in Poland, the free speech pro-democracy pro movements in the Eastern European blocs, those countries that were aligned to the Soviet Union, um, the rise of rights and democracy in Korea, Philippines, and, and even what we're seeing in China these days. And some people will look and say, well, wait a second, wasn't that the gospel that went into all those places and changed things? Yeah, but you have to understand, when Jesus said go into all the world, Christians brought with them the 39 books of the Old Testament. Human rights and the rule of law and the Ten Commandments, all these things piggybacked on what Jesus came to do and to teach. And so God gives Abraham in this first encounter a vision. Now God will appear to Abraham seven times. The binding of Isaac is the seventh and final time. God comes to him again the next time and he says, Abraham, the heir will come from your own body. Now if you're going to have a nation, you need people, right? You need a lot of people. And Abraham has kind of this misstep where he sleeps with uh, his concubine and produces a son named Ishmael. And God said, no, 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 the, the, the heir of promise, the, the nation will be in, in, within the womb of your wife. Now Abraham delivers this to Sarah, and what does she do? She laughs, right? you got to be kidding. Uh, by this time, uh, Abraham's almost 100 years old. She's 80. This is ridiculous. And yet she miraculously conceives, and she has a son, and God said, look, since you laughed, I'm naming the child. And guess what his name's going to be? Laughter. Now, God's not mocking her unbelief. Here's what God's doing. Sometimes when God gives you a vision, you got to see it, right? Abraham, you're going to have a great nation. There's going to be so many people, but I know you can't understand, so let's take a walk outside. Look up in the heavens. Look at all those stars. Uh, take a fistful of sand. Abraham, this is way bigger than you think. They have a child, and God says, you're going to call him laughter. For 18 years when you raise this child, every time you call his name, you're going to be reminded of how ridiculous this is and what I can do. Uh, I think about this in our terms. Can you imagine Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac going grocery shopping? You know, they walk into Walmart. Abraham has a cane. She has a walker. And they have a stroller. <laughs> Everybody's laughing. Uh, they go to the checkout counter. They're the only ones that buy Depends and diapers at the same time, right? And their whole cart is baby food for the baby, and then they're missing tea, so that's all they have to buy, right? And the reason I'm injecting laughter is so you understand how absurd this is. See, you and I have a problem. This is a story. We're looking back. We don't realize these were real people. And laughter 
is something if you walk with God that has to be a byproduct of your life. So when I drive on this campus, I laugh. I'm a landscaper son from Philadelphia. I was in a two-bedroom basement apartment with my wife, broke. And then I walk on this campus and look at all that God has done. I look at uh, the influence and the people and relationships and salvations and this building and, and you laugh. I look at the Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel in the 60s and 70s, the Jesus movement. Uh, Life magazine, this picture of thousands of people at Pirate's Cove at Corona Del Mar in Southern California being baptized. In the midst of a generation, and if you think what's going on now is difficult, uh, Google the late 60s, early 70s, right? Oh my gosh. You know, you had um, the hippies, you had uh, Vietnam, you had protests. I mean, everything was going on, right? And here's this aging, balding, overweight man at the center of it all. And all you can do is laugh. Is there anything you can laugh at in your life? Is there anything you look at in your life and just, just laugh? Oh, my gosh. There's pastors today that were former prisoners, former drug addicts. Just laugh. Like, and see, this is what happens when God's involved with your life. This is what happens when you follow the call and the promise of God. There, there's just an element of laughter when you realize all that he has done. And so Abraham and Sarah begin to raise this child, and then God appears to him again. And he begins to talk to Abraham about covenant. We talk about a covenant-keeping God, right? Jehovah Jireh, the God that keeps covenant, etc. cetera. Uh, covenant, that day, you would take an animal, cut it in half, uh, put it on its side, you take the blood, sprinkle it, and you would do a covenant walk. You would exchange the vows of the covenant, right? Now, we don't do that anymore. We have contracts today. It's more civil. Probably the closest thing we have today is a wedding. Thank God we don't split animals in half at weddings anymore, right? Um, but at a wedding, they still exchange vows, right? For better or worse, for richer or poorer, the husband and wife do it. But God does something interesting with Abraham. He puts Abraham to sleep, and then God announces the covenant. This is a unilateral covenant, right? It's not between God and man. It's all on God. And then there's the sign of the covenant, right? So I've been married for 30-some years, and I have a wedding ring. Uh, every time I look at my wedding ring, it's a sign that I have given myself to one woman and everybody else is off the playing field. Uh, the sign of the covenant for Abraham, uh, Genesis 17 11, God says, Abraham, this will be the sign of the covenant, circumcision. To which Abraham says, and he didn't really say it, but I would have said it, really? At 90? Uh, Noah got a rainbow. Can we do like a secret handshake or something? Like, <laughs> my goodness. And every time a Jew would go to the bathroom, every time they would undress, every time a mother would change a son, they would see the sign of the covenant. That God has made us unique and different. Not that we're better, but we're going to bless. There's going to be a community of faith, hope, and love that the world one day would see under the loving rule and reign of God. This was God's hope. This is the promise to Abraham. Now, God's next appearance to Abraham has always fascinated me. You know it well. It's Genesis 18, 23 to 25, where Abraham came near and said, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? God has told him he's going to destroy God and Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, that's very unique, by the way. If you look at world literature and uh, world religions, there is no God who ever tells his creation what he's about to do, but God does. He says, 
He says, Abraham, the wickedness of Sodom is so great, I'm going to judge them. Abraham says, well, God, I don't understand. Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous in the city. Would you destroy that place and not spare it for 50? God said, no. And Abraham said, for 40, for 30, for 20, for 10. Now, all the other years when I taught this, I would have a joke, right? Are we still allowed a joke in this environment we're in? You know? I would always joke, this is how the Jews got really good at bargaining, right? But I can't say that because I'll get canceled today, right? The problem is I grew up in Philadelphia. I grew up in Polish and black and Jewish and Italian and Irish neighborhoods. And we all went to regional schools and we all talked about our ethnicity and we laughed and we joked. Uh, today you just put a lawn sign out, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that's where we are today. Abraham bargains with God. What's going on here? What's going on is they're in covenant relationship. Uh, you and I throw this term around, we have a relationship with God. We have a relationship with God. We have a personal relationship, right? Um, do you know all relationships have conflict? I don't know if you know that. If you're in a relationship with no conflict, you're not in a relationship. Now, your whole relationship shouldn't be conflict. But human beings can't be in a relationship without conflict. And that's why Jesus said you work it out, Matthew 18 and all that, right? Abraham is now in covenant relationship with God, and there's conflict, isn't there? Don't you have conflict with God? I've walked enough slums in my life around the world to say, God, what's going on here? Abraham's saying, you're going to destroy Sodom? Well, wait, God, I have an intellect, I have a mind, I'm made in your image. What if there's 50 really godly people there? You're still going to do it? And the beauty of this text is, and don't take me out of context, it's not Abraham who becomes vulnerable in an unthinkable way. It's God that's become vulnerable. Uh, people from my generation have a hard time being vulnerable. My parents certainly weren't vulnerable. Uh, I have trouble with it. I'm getting better. Most people my age aren't vulnerable. We're the Marlboro man. We're, we pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps. We, we don't get vulnerable with people. God gets vulnerable with Abraham. Um, Yoram Hazani, I've been quoting him also. He's written the book, The Virtue of Nationalism. He's a, he's an Orthodox Jew. He's a scholar of the Old Testament. In his book, The Philosophy of the Old Testament, I'm going to read you a quote. You're not going to get it. But if you ponder it, I hope you get it at some time. Uh, this is gold, everybody. Listen to what he says. He says, the biblical covenant that God makes with Abraham is a new metaphor for understanding man's relationship with God, which arises precisely from the fact that man, who is free to choose, is not in God's pocket as the ocean and the stars and the animals are. It's profound. Man is, on this view, an independent player who makes decisions for himself as to how to dispose of his strength and abilities. And this means that God, powerful though he may be, is not all-powerful. Quite to the contrary, God is found to be vulnerable before man's rebelliousness and depravity. If God's will is to be done, he will be in need of allies and assistance. And those who turn to him of their own placing themselves in his service, 
are described as attaining something that mere obedience would never obtain. Please hold on your hat and listen to this. God's love. The prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son. There was an obedient second son who never spent his father's money on riotous living. Do you think that son knew his father's love? I don't think so. Now, am I saying you have to go into living with the hogs to understand God's love? No. What I'm saying is in a relationship with God that's honest, and this is what Jesus was trying to undo of the religious leaders and the Pharisees, there becomes a vulnerability to the point where we're in this relationship with God that, that we're, we're kind of melding out what we believe and who he is. This is what's happening to Abraham. You'll find this in the Psalms with David. There's lamenting Psalms, cursing Psalms, Job questioning God. Um, sometimes this is preached as Isaac's obedience, right? Uh, I read one person who said that this opening verse should be appalling on Abraham and God's part. We should be appalled by this. What God would require a son, what man would blindly obey? But see, that's our human construct because we don't understand what God's doing here in Abraham's life. God is on a journey with him. He's going to appear to him seven times. He's going to reveal himself to him. Again, Abraham has no Bible. He has an oral tradition. And there's a God who's beginning to become vulnerable and to reveal himself to Abraham. Now, even in our day, there are people that don't understand because they haven't been through this, right? They look at God as a tyrant. He's evil. He's demanding the God of the Old Testament. There's a movement underfoot in the church, the New Testament church, to dislodge from the God of the Old Testament to just look at Jesus. Which, by the way, I never understood because the Jesus in Revelation is far worse than anything we'd see in the Old Testament. We'll save that for another day. I was in Kennett Square on... Um, Two Mondays ago, it was Columbus Day. It was a god-awful Philadelphia, cloudy, rainy, miserable day. Had to drop somebody at the airport. I told my wife, uh, let's go to Kennett Square and walk around. I get to Kennett Square, there was not a human being to be found. I don't know if it's COVID, Columbus Day, rain. There were no human beings. Most stores weren't open. We got a cup of coffee. I did something I haven't done in 20 years. I walked into a public library. Ever since they built Barnes and Nobles, I haven't been in a library in a long time. Realized how much money I'm spending on all these books, right? Everything's free. It's great. Read the Wall Street Journal, a couple of magazines, and picked up some books I would never buy. I picked up a book by Elizabeth Thomas called Growing Old. I'll be 58 in November. I'm getting there. I thought, maybe I should read something. She's 88. She smokes. She eats what she wants. She's in great health. Uh, I was quite enlightened. She said, if you're 50 and you're reading this book, you probably think you're old, to which people in their 70s and 80s will laugh at you. She said, and this made my day, um, you're not old till your oldest child is 50. Then you're old. Her grandmother was an evangelical, loved Jesus, taught them about salvation. She said it never clicked for her. Now, most pastors would never do this because... This woman can articulate unbelief as few can because she's a brilliant writer. And a lot of pastors wouldn't read this to a congregation because people don't know what to do with this because it's so well crafted. Listen to what she said. 
She said, back when Jesus was living, animals were sacrificed to satisfy whatever gods were up there. Our God wanted something sacrificed to him, and it seemed like an animal wasn't enough. He wanted his own son, the world's best person, killed on our behalf to save not only the sinners of our time, but sinners of the future. That's how bad we are. We're so horrible that uh, we have to get punished in a deep way. And unless we believe in Jesus, who did nothing wrong and was tortured and killed for the rest of us, then there's no hope. I've never been religious. I was very young when Nana's views were presented to me, but not too young to have doubts. And by the time I was in my teens, I decided that if God does unacceptable things, he's not like an employer whose job you can quit or a public official who you can vote out of office. Listen to this well-crafted line. All you can do about a cruel, invisible tyrant is to believe that he doesn't exist. Wow. That'll rattle a couple cages. Now, that's, you know, that's full of misinformation, right? There's no deep dive in the authenticity of Scripture or the life of Jesus or what Christianity's produced. We, we don't want to get into all that. All I'm saying is, without any reasoning, people have this view. They look at a story like Abraham and say, this is absolutely ridiculous. And yet when you read the text, you'll find that Abraham didn't have this view. That there was something beautiful being expounded to him. And it begins in verse 1, where it says, it came to pass that God tested Abraham. Uh, for those of you who are, are older, uh, do you remember in the late 60s, early 70s watching TV? And that black and white circle would come on, I think. And you would hear this piercing sound. This is a test. It's only a test. Emergency broadcast. Uh, if this were an actual emergency, like we were getting nuked by the Soviet Union, uh, we'd tell you where to go, right? Like a fallout shelter or something. This, is, this was a test. Now, here's the problem with the test. Abraham doesn't know it's a test. The test would be so much better if we knew it ahead of time. Like for those of you who are going through it right now, wouldn't it be great if God said, look, it's going to get hard, it's only a test. But we only know it's a test after it's over. That's the problem. But here's what we know about Abraham. The Bible says God tested Abraham. And you know what Abraham's response was in verse 1? Is, here I am. He's not giving God GPS coordinates. God knows where he is. What he is saying is to the God of the covenant that I will trust you even when I don't understand. That's the place Abraham has come to. It's not blind faith. It's an understanding that God has revealed himself in such a way that God can be trusted. I don't understand everything God's doing in my life nor this world, but I know he can be trusted. I know that he's faithful and I know he's a covenant-keeping God. When Abraham bargained with God, he ended that bargaining session by I know the judge of all the earth will do right the judge of all the earth will do right some of you need to hear that I remember when my stepfather died my brother really struggled with it he wasn't a Christian where is he every day some of you do that right you have prodigal children and you know, just struggle and my brother was always mad that I never struggled with stuff like that and I said, look, here, here's all I know. God created our dad. He loves him. He loves him more than us. Judge of all the earth will do right. My shoulders aren't big enough to handle something like that. 
Um, I see through a glass dimly. God has given me a lot of revelation. What I don't understand, I know the judge of all the earth will do right. So Abraham doesn't have blind faith here. Abraham trusts that what God's about to do is powerful. Take your son, your only son, um, that you love, and go to the land of Moriah. By the way, I, I don't know if you know the topography of Israel, right? So Jerusalem is a place you would never put a city. If you look at it from a top view, uh, there's mountain ranges there, right? And Moriah, there's a ridge that runs from north to south, and the northmost point of that ridge is called Moriah. Now, in the New Testament, it's Golgotha or Calvary. Now, David hasn't, you know, established the city of David or Jerusalem yet, yet this is the place Abraham's called to go. Take the son, the son that you love, to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, Isaac his son. He split the wood for a burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and he saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Circle, we will come back to you. Wait a second, I thought God said you're going to kill your only son. Think about what's going on here. God didn't say, Abraham, murder your son. God didn't say, take a knife, go in the tent and murder your son. Abraham thinks this is an act of worship. This is a sacrifice. And when he sees the place, he said, look, the lad and I will go. We will sacrifice and we shall return. The writer of the Hebrews says that Abraham accounted or concluded that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead, even that he received him in a figurative sense. So in between services, someone said, did Abraham really know this was a picture of Christ? I don't think so. He certainly had the promise of Genesis that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, but, but I don't know if Abraham could understand all that was going on. He understood this. He understood that what God was asking was not in a line with God's character. And that if he was really to offer Isaac, and it's not only his son, it's the promise that God would have to literally raise this child from the dead. Now, that word in the Greek, whether it's concluding or accounting, uh, can be rendered arguing. He's bargaining again. Just like Joshua, the three days they had before they crossed the Jordan, or maybe the three days Jonah was in the belly of the fish. Abraham has three days, and he's wrestling, man. He's really wrestling. He trusts God, but he doesn't understand. And he's accounting that if God does this, then the judge of all the earth will do right. And what Abraham's about to enter into is the fellowship of God's suffering, right? The New Testament talks about that. Now, we like to dance around and talk about the power of the resurrection, right? And then we leave off the rest of the verse, and the fellowship of his suffering. You see, what we're seeing is the father's love for an only son, the son that he loves. And by the way, Abraham had two sons. If this was all just about a son, Abraham has two sons. We know the story of Ishmael. This is the seed of promise. This is everything Abraham has given his life up for. 
The next part is something that I don't know how many of us could ever walk through. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. I believe Isaac's at least a teenager, maybe an adult. This son who he probably held in swaddling clothes, he's now putting wood on his back. The knife that he used to protect his son and kill deer and slay animals and sacrifice, he's about to sacrifice his son. It's unthinkable. But Isaac spoke to Abraham. It's the only time they have a conversation in Scripture. He says, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham was a man of the tent and the altar. Now, this is way before Passover. But he understands sacrifice. He understands blood atonement. Where's the lamb? That question is answered when Jesus comes on the scene at his baptism And even before that, when John points to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. takes 1,500 years to answer that question. Abraham said, verse 8, My son, God will provide for himself, or literally himself, the Lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together, and they came to the place which God told them, and Abraham built an altar there, placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son. Now, you've all seen altars, right? Whether it's the temple, the brazen altar, or uh, even pagan altars have four horns, one in every corner. And what you would do is you would bind the, the four legs of an animal to the four ends of the altar so they can't move, right? If you come after an animal with a knife, he's going to run. Imagine binding your son. The Bible says you and I are living sacrifices. No one needs to bind us. We willingly made our decision. Isaac submits. Abraham takes the knife. The angel of the Lord comes, who I believe is Jesus Christ, a Christophany, and says, Abraham, don't kill your son. Now I know that there's nothing you will withhold. Abraham, I understand you trust. And so when we talk about love, it's not our songs, movies, it's not our human construct. True love, in a biblical sense, is all about a place, an only son, worship, and a sacrifice. When the Bible talks about love, this is the supreme act of love. Isaac becomes a type of Christ. Uh, Jesus and Isaac both were conceived miraculously. Both of their births were promised. Both were told what to name the child. Both were obedient even unto death. Jesus would utter the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Abraham never forsook Isaac, but God would forsake his only son. This is the last time Abraham would hear God's voice. The mission's complete. He understands. Now, any thinking person in the room would say, Pastor Bob, that's amazing. This is the first time love's used. But I'm a little inquisitive. When's the first time love is used in the New Testament? Glad you asked. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, a voice came out of heaven. This is Jesus' baptism. This is my son whom I love with I'm well pleased. First time in the New Testament is a father's son, love for an only son. Uh, same in Mark, Mark 1.11, same situation. Luke 3, same situation. The Holy Spirit descends 
in bodily form like a dove, and a voice comes out of heaven, you are my son whom I love in whom I'm well pleased. But the first time we see it in John, you know the verse well, is John 3.16. This is not now God's love for his only son. It says God so loved the world that you and me and gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would never perish but have eternal life. This is how all the families of the earth would be blessed. That God would call Abraham to start a community of faith, hope, and love that one day would deliver to us Jesus Christ who would become the one that God would bind on a cross. And because God's in covenant relationship, you know, some people say, why can't God just forgive? Because there's something greater here. There's something deeper. There's a covenant relationship God made with humanity. A cruel tyrant, a God of the Old Testament who is vindictive would never exchange his only son for an unbelieving, God-denying, self-serving, materialistic world, but God did. And many of us are the byproduct of it. And in the Anglican church, this is Good Friday. And we know what Sunday's all about. Abraham passed the test. Jesus passed the test in Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. You and I, as we go through the seasons of life, you know, there are things we don't understand. Many of these are tests. We'll find out later they were tests. God proving something greater in us because we're in covenant relationship. A relationship with God isn't about being a success in life. It's not about cool worship. You know, worship here was a sacrifice. It wasn't cool worship songs, lights, $1,500 sneakers. I'm not against all that. Maybe the $1,500 sneakers, but you get the idea, right? This, this is what worship really is. It's not singing three songs. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of faith and obedience to a God, listen to Romans 8.32, who did not spare his only son, how will he not freely give us all things? If God, listen, there's logic. The cross says there's logic. The love of God says there's logic. The logic is this. If he didn't give his only son, why would he withhold anything else? Now the problem is we judge everything according to this life, this little span. And that's hard to do. Uh, a lot of us have to understand the judge of all the earth will do right. You can't take your little solitary little life of 70 years and say, oh my gosh, God, you haven't done the right thing. There's a lot more going on than you. Sad to say, I know you're American, but there's more than just you, okay? The last thing I want to say is the book of Hebrews, because we're leaving Abraham, says, he looked for a city of sure foundations whose builder and maker was God. He looked for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker is God. Now, I don't want to be a killjoy, but I'm going to tell you the truth. Your whole entire Christian life, your whole journey, is going to be a series of God knocking faulty foundations under you. He's just going to whack them out. You know when we play Jenga, you know, you pull them out? That's what God's doing. 
Everything you rely on that isn't rock, he's just removing. Everything you trust in, everything you thought was a foundation, God will just remove them as life goes on. Until one day you say to live is Christ, to die is gain. The one day you say, like Paul said, you know, it's better for me to stay here. I want to go, but it's better to stay. It's why Jesus said you can build your house on the sand or on the rock. And you'll never find out until the storms come. Almost everything I've said about the pandemic, I said in March. I'm not a Monday morning quarterback. I said when the pandemic started, who you were before the pandemic is who you will find out you are in the pandemic. It's like Mike Tyson said, strategy is wonderful until you get punched in the face. Pain reveals who you are. And in the pandemic, foundations have been removed. And look at New York City, the most successful city, this wonderful city of money and power. I was there two weeks ago. It looks like Gotham in a Batman movie. Trash everywhere. You can smell weed everywhere you walk. God's removing foundations little by little. And he's doing it so we can look for a city that has sure foundations. I love earth as much as you do, but it's not our home. I love earth as much as you do. I know life can change on a dime. I've seen it happen over and over again. Today's the day of salvation. Today is the day where we bask in the love of God and his majesty and his wonder. The beauty of salvation, look, God so loved the world. God didn't look at the world and say, look, clean up your act. Get right, and then I'll love you. He loved the world the way it was, which means that's the way we should love the world. It's amazing. I talked about evangelism a few weeks ago, and I talked about how there's always been evangelists in our church. And they come to Christ, and they just keep bringing people. I was talking to somebody who goes to Westchester University, and all through the summer they're bringing people, and these people are getting baptized. And the reason that happens is because people realize, oh, my gosh, there's a God who loves me the way I am, and then he'll rebuild me. And, guys, this is our message, right? Faith, hope, and love. Our message is there's a God who loves you more than you can imagine. And he won't leave you the way you are. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about love, right? Talks about the outpouring of love. It talks about what happens when love becomes in us. And look, we're frail, we're weak, we don't always walk in love. But love is the supreme value in this universe. That's why people were drawn to Jesus. They weren't drawn to Jesus because... He railed against all the things in society. He said almost nothing about most of them. Infanticide was rampant in the Greco-Roman world. Jesus never talked about it. But anybody who came in contact with Jesus knew they were loved. Whether they were Samaritan, Jew, or Greek, that is the power of the cross. Michael Card sings that wonderful song that if they didn't nail Jesus to the cross, his love would have held him there. Because God was binding him there for you and me. And so today, uh, I just basked in, in God's goodness. I look at the Old Testament. I look at what God has done. I laugh that I'm the recipient of it, and so should you. That we have found this glorious, not only this glorious salvation, but this wonderful community of people and friends. And oh my gosh, in heaven to boot. So let's all stand. 
And the worship team has just a celebratory song of God's salvation. If you don't know Jesus Christ, this is a place where we learn and grow. No one's going to coerce you into something you don't want to do. But there are so many people in this building. There'll be people here at the stage. We have a prayer room in the cafe, the bookstore, that will help you on your journey to becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. That is our goal, a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ.